Hey everybody. So what I'm doing is I'm doing a, I like to do a, a real brief little camera. So everybody turn on your camera just for a second. Cause otherwise, you know, there, yeah, turn on your camera so I can see who I'm talking to. Cause otherwise, you know, I'm, I'm in this uh, cardboard box kind of thing. So it's always fun to see that there are actually some humanoids <laughs> out there. <laughs> uh, that's great. Thank you. Perfect. Human beings on the end of the cyberspace. So, so, okay. So here we are. Oh my gosh. 23. Amazing. Um, so if you're new to this, these are extremely informal, which is one reason I like doing them and continue to do them because unlike everything else I do, which requires preparation, blah, blah, blah. I just, I pretty much just show up. I love it. Um, and what I always start with, of course, is a little housekeeping, kind of a little bit of shameless self-promotion. And then we're going to do something a tad bit different. I'm, I'm going to fulfill a promise that I mentioned months ago. Um, I'm finally going to do it today, but I'll get back to that in just a second. And then, as usual, most of what we do is just Q&A discussion offering. Doesn't always have to be questions. Um, we'll start with a few written questions that were sent in, and then we open it up to whatever you guys want to talk about or whatever you want to offer. I mean, if there's something that, that's relatively brief that you feel is a benefit, that's also welcome because, you know, we got a nice group. <clears throat> there's a lot of collective wisdom here. So just a couple little things. Um, I, um, for those of you who are nightclub members, um, this the interview with David Loy, I think we finally posted that. I, I had such a great time talking to this. He's amazing. This guy's amazing. So I'm definitely going to get him back online sometime in the future. I am deeply impressed with his sophistication as a thinker, philosopher, and also practitioner. Uh, yesterday, I spent almost two hours in the morning um, interviewing Daniel Love. We had a recommendation from members to do that. I've been trying to get him for months. He finally was free enough. So we had a really rich conversation. I have to say I was pleasantly surprised at the, at the depth and nuance and the elegance of his lifetime work. He wrote this quite nice book called Are You Dreaming? Which is a really quite nice kind of uh, introduction to the basic mechanics of lucid dreaming. Um, and he approaches it from a materialistic perspective, but a receptive one. Uh, so we had, a, we had some conversations about just that, you know, the juxtaposition between materialistic and then more perhaps spiritual psychological approaches. But I had a really fun time with him. Tomorrow, um, this Islamic scholar, I'm, I'm bringing him on, Yusuf, who's actually lives in Baghdad. He's my new pen pal in Baghdad. And he's been sending me stuff for a month. I uh, just reached out of the blue. That's kind of blowing me away. I mean, I, there's just not, I don't, in fact, I don't know anything from the mystical esoteric Islamic Sufi traditions that talks about dream yoga analogs, that sort of thing. And so he's been pinging a bunch of stuff my way that's like, whoa, um, in his research and writing. And so I'm going to bring him on tomorrow. And I just have a ton of questions about how um, Islam relates to this sort of thing. Um, book group, you know, <clears throat> notice I don't have my book behind me. Um, but uh, September 22nd, that evening, we start this open-ended kind of indefinite book group thing. I'm actually quite excited about going through this. We got a nice size group, which is great. Um, going through the book literally line by line and running commentary, which, which is kind of a traditional thing to do. Um, in this case, it's going to be an auto commentary where um, 
I mean, I've never done this, so it will be interesting. You know, I'm going to read uh, my stuff and then give you the inside scene, like what, what was going on here? How has my thinking evolved since writing this? Um, and I honestly, I, th I personally think the book warrants it because it's, there's just so much here. The book is pretty dense. So that's coming up on, on the 22nd. And also um, round two with Bob Thurman, um, a six day program, two weekends, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, starting October 2nd through 4th and then 9th through 11th, where I do the morning sessions, Bob Thurman does the afternoon. We did a, our first round back in May and I, I had a terrific time. I mean, it, Bob Thurman is a hoot. <laughs> he's, he's what I refer to as a hoot with a heart. He's amazing. I mean, He's, uh, along with Jeffrey Hopkins, probably even more so, he is like the, one of the real fathers of Tibetan Buddhism in, in the Western world, in the academy. I mean, he taught at Columbia for many, many years. Um, he's an amazing guy. I translated the Tibetan Book of the Dead, blah, blah, blah. Written, translated a ton. And just a delightful, spontaneous character, to put it mildly. I really like him a lot. We had such fun. So we're doing, we're doing the second of, of this, this kind of deep dive preparation for end of life. Um, this one is on the, the uh, karmic bardo becoming, the, the third bardo. I, in my pro, uh, process, I do the first bardo, which is what I did with him in May. And by these are standalones. You don't have to attend the first one. You can totally show up with this and not have done any. But my approach, I do the first one, I jump to the third, and then I come back and do the second on the Luminous Bardo Dharmata. I do that last because that, that's the most difficult, subtle, nuanced one. It's the hardest one to wrap your mind around. But anyway, so that's what's coming up. So what I thought I would do today that's different is um, a number of people have been asking, you know, since I mentioned something to this effect, I think back in, I don't know when, April, about this crying meditation. It seems like you all want to cry. <laughs> it's like, I can't tell you how many times I get People want to hear this crying meditation. So um, I actually wrote up some bullet points. I thought, oh, I'll just do that. But then, I mean, I've got three computers around me here. I, I just pulled it up, the interview where Zach Stein, this philosopher, actually introduced this practice to me. This, this is not a kind of traditional Buddhist practice. It's connected to some things that we do, like Tonglen. Um, it's con definitely connected to kind of psychological and spiritual principles. And so what I thought I would do, it takes about five minutes or so. Um, I'm just gonna hit the play button here, take my lapel mic, put it on the speaker. Um, Andy will tell me, we did a little test that seems to work. And therefore, for all of you who want to cry, <laughs> and right, there's like a lot to cry about these days. Here are some instructions from Zach Stein on, on the crying meditation. So let me just, um, again, I haven't done this before. Let's just see how it flies over. It's about five minutes. And then we can talk about this um, or pretty much everything you want. So let's see how this goes. Here we go. I think it's not, it's actually not a complicated practice. I, I think it is a hard practice though. Um, so, I mean, one would be, you know, identifying the first step is finding the points in your day or your life that make you want to cry. <laughs> so that's the first thing you, my sense is that one should do this practice, especially when one is in the situation where events in their life actually are of an intensity that is great enough and an emotional valiance that is negative enough 
that one would like to cry. Um, so that's that's the first part is identify what it is, you know, and then find a way to either be by yourself or with someone you trust and go back to that. Go back to that moment. I usually lay down, lay down, <laughs> lay down and in your imagination, go back to that moment and allow yourself to feel the stuff you didn't feel then uh, because it wasn't appropriate to cry. Um, so that's, I guess, step two, lay down, return to the moment. And now this is where it gets tricky because this is where you kind of have to do that. I call it putting your finger down your throat, which is not the greatest metaphor. Yeah, right. but, uh, but it's basically like that where you have to intensify the emotional yeah. quality of that moment. So you turn that moment from an everyday moment into a mythical moment, into an archetypally intensified, mandolically beautiful, tragic constellation, basically. So you deepen it with your imagination and you're right now when you're doing that, you're moving towards the unbearable image, which is the real source of the pain, which is once you find that thought or that, or that image, then the tears will come. So you're, you're hunting for why that moment made you want to cry. What exactly was the quality deepening into it until you find something. Um, so that would be the third step, which would be begin to cry. Um, and then just cry basically like, and <laughs> you know, let the body do what it wants to do. If you want to curl into a ball, curl into a ball. If you want to shake and release some trauma, shake, um, you're going to get snotty, you have some tissues, be able to blow your nose, you know, um, be prepared to cry so that you can. Um, so that would be the one cry and cry. And usually it'll come in waves. So expect to have some sense of, okay, I'm done crying. And then the thought returns or the image returns and then you cry a little bit more. So you cry to the point where you're done crying. Just like if you were trying to throw up something, you would try to throw, throw up until it was out, you know? And, um, and then, then meditate, then meditate, then be in the silence that arises after you've borne the unbearable image and you're no longer afraid of seeing it, then it won't surface again. And then you can just be there. And in my experience, when you're there in that silence, post tears, mostly what comes is a kind of gratitude or a kind of recommitment or a kind of clarification of the value that was making that unbearable image so unbearable, right? That you're actually deeply affirming of something and that's why you're crying. Um, and usually it's, uh, it depends on the situation, you know, but for me it was, it was about love. And so that's that final step is meditate and reconstitute yourself around the clarity that you've gotten um, from the experience. Uh, so those would be, I think that would be basically it. That would be basically it. And so Zach, what, again, uh, individual time? I mean, just like whatever it takes? I mean, because yeah, I mean, my sense is that it's probably for me about a half an hour. Yeah, yeah. About a half an hour. You know, you, 
you want to give yourself enough time, but you don't want to indulge. Oh, I think that's one of the risks is that it becomes a kind of complex grief. And this is, I think, the risk of doing it with someone there. Uh, if you do it alone and you're not on display and there's not the expectation of when to stop or when not to stop. So I've always done it alone, but I do know some people. Yeah. What would you eat? And that's a good point. I was going to ask you this, Zach. What would be the benefit of doing it with someone else? Only if you felt perhaps not sure enough, stable enough to do it yourself? Or? I will, so I think uh, this is honestly a really interesting kind of clinical question. I, I do some, think some people would find it harder to cry by themselves. And in fact, the being seen crying yeah. can be important. Um, so this would, I think this would be an individual thing. I can also imagine a sense of feeling a little bit unsafe, a sense of feeling like you may want to be comforted or kind of pulled out, you know, kind of pulled out of the darkness by somebody. So those kinds of things would make someone maybe hesitant to do it unless there was someone else there. Um, uh, but there's also the risk if someone else is there of it becoming performative or, um, or overwhelming for them to witness. So there's complexities with the, with the person there. Um, but basically, to me, because it became to feel like a bodily process or like an organic process, it seemed to have its own natural time cycle. Like, um, and that's how I knew that I was doing it in a kind of, I don't know if the right word is healthy, but I knew that I was doing it in like a healthy way was this sense of completion that occurred, which uh, didn't feel when I cried in unplanned times and circumstances <laughs> where it felt much more complicated and messy. Uh, doing it in this way made it feel um, almost like a bodily function that I was giving more respect and honor to. Yeah, beautiful. And you know what comes to mind, my friend, let me share this with you, because when, when I was doing this you know, spontaneously in my retreat, when I finished my session, um, I found myself just spontaneously doing what um, is sometimes talked about as aimless wandering, where I, I would leave the room in silence and, and then just literally step outside and just like it sounds, directionless, um, aimless, just wander as a way to kind of um, slide back into so-called post-meditation. Because I, I think one of the, the challenges I, I face with, with practices of such depth is, is the, trans, the transition out, the kind of post-meditation right. experience. So what, what is, how do you play with that kind of post-meditation? Mm -hmm. What do you do when you finish a session, so to speak? That's interesting. I mean, that's a very, very good point because it is true. Re-entering the world after that kind of intense emotional experience can be can be difficult. Um, I mean, yeah, when I first developed the practice, I actually uh, would also do aimless wandering afterwards because I would do it um, outside in the woods. Um, and so that's interesting. And then I've known people who, after intensive psychotherapy sessions, they would just go to the grocery store and just walk around the grocery store for a while just to be around like normal people and to feel like a normal human again. <laughs> and so, yeah, I think there is some kind of re-entry procedure and it may, it's going to vary on where you get to do the practice, you know, like the ideal situation is that you get to do it alone and that there's enough time and space that you can really recompose yourself before you re-enter, you know, and 
um, but in more constricted conditions or you just kind of have to go to the other room, um, then you'd probably want to find a way to reorient like some music that you really identify with or a book you were working on or um, something that would ground you in your identity could be helpful. Yeah. Or beauty, what, what comes to mind, Zach? Beauty, yeah. Beauty. Totally. Now, that was always the saving grace of, of where I've lived has been always so rural. Yeah. So these practices were always, um, you know, the trees and the sunsets and things like that are intermingled with my memories of, of doing the practice. And then, and then maybe one last question, um, as we say in the medical business, TRN as needed or, or when does, when? Totally as needed, yeah. as needed. Like it was a weekly thing for me for a while, you yeah. know, and the fact that I knew that I could do it was key to holding it when I wasn't, you know what I mean? Like there was this sense of having it almost like not scheduled, but there was a rhythm to it. But now um, it's more like every other month, yeah. you know, depending on context. And then again, I don't, I don't think this is something that should be done when one is not in a situation that warrants it. So like, yeah. and again, I say that now, knowing that many people are because of the pandemic in such a situation where tears are warranted. But I don't think one should go out of one's way uh, to force the tragic sensibilities and tears when yeah. life is not evoking them. Yeah, and, and that's what's it's so interesting because you know I, you you heard me use the term near, near enemy. I'm sure you've, you've heard it. You know where would you find light? You find shadow. And I see a host of near enemies here. One is indulgence. One is you know permission to be a drama queen. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know you have to you have to watch your motivation when you do these these sorts of things. Right. I can certainly see some theater going on. Um, and that's something that people have to really titrate suss out for themselves before they go into this sort of thing. No, and that's why I, I don't talk about it a lot because I think it can be it can be misunderstood and has been in some kind of post-Rogerian kind of like group psychotherapy contexts um, yeah. where there's a fetidization and overindulgence in the emotions, which are not actually sincere expressions of what life is calling for. Um, and again, if you're not in a situation where life is calling for tears and a recognition of the tragic structure, uh, just wait. <laughs> you will be. You will be in one. So there, there we go. I hope that worked for you. A couple of things come to mind, and then we'll we'll turn to the Q and A. Um, I mean, when I listen to this again, what what stands out for me a little bit is, is the, it's really kind of a permission practice, right? You know, the permission to be human. And also the importance of, of staying embodied, you know, this, this a little bit ties into what we talked about way back in March about, you know, the, the anti-complaint meditation. Remember where, you know, if you feel something that's worth complaining about, stop, ask yourself, what am I feeling that I don't want to feel and stay with that. And so, this kind of waking down, staying in the wisdom of the body is, is seems to me key. Um, and, to, and to create, you know, this kind of environment where you can do it, because often within the context of life, it's not perhaps that conducive for this. And, and in so doing, then what you do, it's a little bit like, you know, one of my favorite statements from Suzuki Roshi um, from Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, that, you know, we should not, we should be good bonfires. We shouldn't be smoky fires. And so 
by this, my interpretation of that is that um, in order to kind of live purely, cleanly, freely without creating karmic residue, without creating karmic traces or samskaras, I think we talked earlier in this, somewhere in this series about samskaras, these kind of unprocessed, undigested experiences that get lodged into your body and mind matrix, um, usually because we don't want to experience them, they're painful. And so what this invites for me is that if you have these authentic um, situations, and again, I want to insert this, Zach shared this with me um, during the interview because he had been tending to, to his partner, his wife, for a really long period of time under extraordinary duress. I mean, really difficult caregiving, fatigue, burnout, and dealing with someone that you love for so long and so much pain. And so he, you know, he kind of naturally evolved this practice, which certainly resonates with me and some of my experiences I've had somewhat spontaneously over the years as well. So it's, to me, it's a notion of staying out of the storyline, cutting the storyline, returning into your body, having, uh, giving yourself permission to um, be human. And also what comes to mind also uh, is Mingyur Rinpoche once talks about how he had to break down before he could break through. That, you know, allowing sometimes the, the deconstructive facade that keeps us away from these unwanted experiences, just allowing yourself, you know, like when things fall apart, right? How much children has written books on this. Staying with that unwanted, staying in that furnace and cremating, cremating your experience while you live it. So, you know, it may not be pleasant, but remember, as I say over and over, my riff on the whole spiritual path is, it's not about feeling good, unless you're talking about basic goodness. It's about getting real. And getting real is having a heart, mind big enough, receptive, accommodating, open to accommodate anything, even so-called unwanted experiences. And, and, and so um, I, I found it helpful. And there, I fulfilled my promise. I've been delaying this for like four months. So there you have it. So uh, we can open it up. Um, we're right about on track time-wise. Andy has a couple of written questions. And then we open it all up for what you want to talk about. So fire away, Andy. All right, great. Thanks, Andrew. Um, all right, first question. I was wondering if there are any studies or anything that you are currently working on regarding lucid dream healing. Yeah, this is a good question. You know, I, I have on the docket, uh, um, I've been in contact with uh, Martin Dressler, who's a one of the world's leading dream researchers, actually lucid dreaming in Germany. And so, in fact, on my calendar, it says, Martin said that the summary reached out to me back in September. So this is a question for me to pose to a scientist whose who's entire life is devoted to this sort of thing. I don't know of one, but again, I am not as well informed as, as a scientist like Martin. So that's a question I can bring to him. I do know, however, that people um, like Robert Wagner, Claire Johnson, um, I know for sure they have written about this. In fact, when I interviewed both of them, we talked a little bit about this. Um, it has a lot of traction. I, I think it was just last week or two weeks ago when I spoke a little bit about how there's tremendous uh, validity for me and just asserting that it's possible to cure using the, the lucid dreaming state. So as far as I'm aware, I don't know of any studies but this is a question I can ask to Martin when, when I bring him on board. So we'll put a little hold on that one. Okay, great. Next question. Can you please explain the Thich Nhat Hanh quote on page 252 of Dream Yoga, specifically, quote, 
When we think something, we are those thoughts. We and our thoughts are not separate. When we say wait, something- Wait, wait, just a second, Andy. So this is Thich Nhat Hanh, right? This is Thich Nhat Hanh's yeah. quote. Yeah, just wanna make sure. So start sure. the quote again. Sure, sure. When we think something, we are those thoughts. We and our thoughts are not separate. Mm -hmm. When we say something, those words are us. There is no speaker outside of the words, end quote. So then um, this person goes on to say, my understanding is that we are not our thoughts, but the awareness of the thoughts, the pure consciousness. As such, this quote is a little confusing to me. Yeah, so here, yeah, good question. So here, the way to address this is to realize spectrums of identity, right? That, that we don't exist as one kind of locus nidus of, of identity. And so this question of who am I, again, is such a foundational question. It was really the central inquiry in the entire spiritual path of Ramana Maharshi. So this is a big deal question. And so my read on this is that there's ways to make room for both approaches, that from what you are saying, the questioner, that foundationally, irreducibly, at a more absolute level, we, we are this kind of formlessness, this no-thingness um, that you seem to be intimating, and that it is from perhaps from that stance when we take refuge in that bandwidth of our identity, then we, we can really accurately say, I am not my thoughts, I am not this world, I am not, you know, I'm in this world, but not of it. So that's authentic from that particular bandwidth. However, um, when we engage, you know, when we step into the world, we step into form, we step into speech, um, then we actually become that. It's like Thich Nhat Hanh is saying, we, we actually um, temporarily become those thoughts. We become those forms and we become those actions. And, and what I'm thinking of here, a quote that comes to mind again, Suzuki Roshi, when he said, you know, strictly speaking, there are no enlightened beings, there's only enlightened activity. I mean, right there you have that. So thinking that there's an enlightened being, this is that kind of subtle cosmological dualism that, that um, I think is super important for spiritual practitioners, that somehow you know, the idea is to, to FedEx, get out of form, get into the spirit. And then from there, it's actually a limitation of the Advaita Vedanta approach. That's their kind of perspective, um, stat, stepping back, retreating into this non-dualistic stance my understanding based on, on works of Ram, Ramana Maharshi and others is that's their fruition. But, you know, then, then from a more completely non-dualistic point, there's still one more step. Then you actually take that and come back into the world of form, into the world of activity and speech. And so Suzuki Roshi, strictly speaking, there are no enlightened beings, there's only enlightened activity. That means that really at this kind of applied emptiness level, um, you know, tat tam asi, thou art that. At that level, you you become that. And so there's room for both um, approaches. They're, they are not irreconcilable. They're only irreconcilable from an egoic point of view. You can't have this kind of simultaneity. Well, just because it doesn't fit into ego's worldview, doesn't fit into, it means it doesn't mean it doesn't fit into a reality. So yes and no. So on an absolute level, yes, a, a more absolute dimension is in fact this formless state. But if you just transfer all your eggs into that ontological basket, that has its own set of problems. Um, in addition to cosmological dualism, you have all these absolutistic problems that then you know, slip into spiritual bypassing, all these kinds of dismissive things. So the idea is, is to work with both. That you, you, know, you have this aspect of your identity, 
And then you have this other aspect that, that when you express yourself, you can actually express yourself in and as form, as Thich Nhat Hanh was saying. So um, my invitation would be open mind, heart, where we have room for both of these stances. Makes sense to me. Cool. Okay. Next question. One more? Yeah. Um, next one. I need to understand why just a few days ago, my dream shifted in a way that has caught me off guard. The dream actually spoke to me. I awoke with a voice welcoming me by saying, there you are, we've been waiting for you, or I've been waiting for you. Being taken by surprise, I recorded the dream first thing in the morning as is my practice. Sounds as though I am in for instruction or a dialogue of some sort. Perhaps my ego is trying to sideswipe me. I am curious as to how you might advise me on how to proceed. Do I need to be concerned? No, I mean, your ego may need to be concerned. <laughs> you know, these, these teachings and practices playfully, you know, they're hazardous to your egoic health, right? You don't need to be concerned. That limited bandwidth called ego maybe needs to be concerned, but don't listen to that voice. So there are a number of ways. This is interesting. <clears throat> this is an interesting statement. There's a number of ways to look at this one, you know, in fact, interestingly enough, when in my interview yesterday with Daniel Love, we talked about this. I, I asked Daniel, like, well, like, what do you do with your lucid dreaming practice? I mean, he's a veteran. He's been doing this for decades. And, and one of the things he riffed on a little bit was he, he's now working with um, understanding the display of the so-called characters in his dream. Um, you know, to what extent, this is my language to what he was saying, to what extent are they in fact projections of my mind, i.e. solipsistic, the ultimate selfism? Are they in fact merely projections of my mind or do they in fact have some kind of so-called ontological independence? To me, this is an open question. I'm agnostic on this. My, my world is big enough to, again, accommodate both, that I think the vast majority of our, our dreams are in fact what's called solipsistic, that there's just your mind in there. But um, I don't think definitively so. I, I think that, it, um, and in fact, I mentioned this quote a number of times, it's in the classic literature that, you know, the farther down the rabbit hole you go, the more collective the experience becomes. In other words, the more open it becomes. And therefore, this makes room for this type of, of possibility that what could be arising in your dream is not you. Um, this also ties in, uh, this is such a horn sense of issues because of course, on a deeper level, there is no you, but we won't go there. And so what also comes to mind here is Philemon. You know, Carl Jung had his dream guide, Philemon, who just appeared to him and, and became his dream guide. That he, Carl Jung related to him as this kind of, you know, so, so to speak, independent entity that would infiltrate his dream space and actually guide him. And so you may want to look at Carl's, Carl Jung's experiences around this character and realize that it's not that terribly different. Um, that there, you know, I have certainly had dreams. Let me speak from my own perspective. I have certainly had dreams, especially in deep retreat or times of tremendous need, where it seems to me, you know, these extremely powerful lucid dreams, where it seems to me, and again, I'm open, I, I'm agnostic. I don't know for sure. On one level, it doesn't matter. But I would sit, for instance, at the feet, I remember very clearly, um, sitting at the feet of His Holiness, the 17th Karmapa is, is, you know, I'm looking at Andy on the screen here, as clear as Andy is in front of me in the screen, His Holiness Karmapa was in this dream. And I literally was asking him questions as if I would be asking Andy questions right here and right now. I mean, like no difference phenomenologically. 
And so is that really the Karmapa in there? Is that really Philemon in there? Is that really some other entity in there? Or is it a deeper aspect of my heart-mind manifesting in that form for me to establish a relationship to that? I don't know. I don't know anybody who can really answer that definitively. But I, again, you know, the power of an open question, um, I would just kind of ride with it and stay open. So how to proceed? Proceed with, with a sense of enthusiasm and confidence that something cool is happening, right? And sometimes we, you know, we, don't, we don't have to figure it all out. Pay attention to the feeling tone. Pay attention to how it's working with you, how it's transforming you, how it's challenging you. Um, and until that discord becomes really uh, fractional, really um, challenging, I wouldn't worry at all. In fact, I would celebrate that something really cool is happening here. And then, you know, if you want to augment your understanding, I would read Carl Jung's work around Philemon. Um, there's other sources I can't think of other immediate others that come to mind, but this is not at all an, un, an uncommon experience. Shamans work with this a way, work in this way a lot. You know, they're intermediaries, they're midwives to these kind of other dimensions. And to me, it just bespeaks of the utter ineffable uh, mystery behind it all. Um, and that we don't necessarily have to know. I mean, sometimes just resting in the wonder is, 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 is part of the, uh, the magic behind the entire thing. So I would say in short, don't worry, it sounds really cool to me. I would just kind of dry, dive back in with a sense of curiosity and adventure and say, hey, cool, welcome, welcome. What, what, what can I learn from you? What do you have, what do you have to teach me? <laughs> so anyway, that's what comes to mind. So at this point, open for anybody, unless there's another written one that came in, Andy. Yeah, I've got another text question for you. <clears throat> this is from Sherry. Yoga Nidra, I'm told, is tantric. How does deep dreamless sleep compare to lucid dreaming? Well, there's three things there. They're not quite isomorphic or the same. So yoga nidra is not quite the same as, as sleep yoga. They're similar, but they're not different. Even though nidra means sleep, nidra yoga seems to imply sleep yoga. It's the same word, again, these are multivalent terms. Sleep yoga in the Buddhist tradition um, is not quite the same as yoga nidra in the, in the Hindu tradition. Um, so that's the first thing. The, read the second part of that question again, Andy, the last part. Sure. Uh, how does deep dreamless sleep compare to lucid dreaming? Yeah. Okay. So now we're talking about class. Okay. So let's just speak within the Buddhist context here. And so deep dreamless sleep in and of itself, I don't think that's where the question is. <clears throat> I think you're talking about lucidity and deep dreamless sleep. Um, so then of course, really what you're talking about is, is luminosity yoga, sleep yoga. And so the relationship is super interesting. I mean, lots to say here. Um, one thing that immediately comes to mind is, is that in the Nyingma tradition of Tibetan Buddhism, sleep yoga is actually the main practice. That's the main nocturnal meditation. Dream yoga is a subset of that. So, and what that means is that if you attain lucidity in the deep dreamless state, you automatically become lucid in the dream state. And even in my kind of mapping of the nocturnal meditation, sleep yoga transcends but includes dream yoga. And so therefore, this is super interesting because uh, it implies a number of things. You can therefore use, and this is the way I approach sleep yoga, um, which by the way is a really difficult, subtle, super subtle practice because it's formless. I use dream yoga as a kind of halfway house to sleep yoga. And, and there's, we can go there if you want, it's a little bit long-winded, but you can actually use the lucidity in the dream state to gain access to lucidity in the deep dreamless state. 
Um, I write about this quite a bit in, in my book, Dream Yoga, the first one. Um, it is an incredibly interesting, profound space. When that's in the Hindu tradition, when, when you access that state, that's called Turiya, the fourth, the fourth state, the other three being deep um, waking, dreaming, and dream, uh, deep dreamless consciousness. So the fourth is actually below that, bringing awareness into into the deep dreamless state. And maybe I'll let that one go for now because that's a pretty deep rabbit hole that we can take in a lot of ways, but roughly that's the relationship. Sleep yoga transcends but includes. In a very real way, if you are in fact lucid to that state, that is um, when you're the most in contact with reality. And even Ramana Maharshi says this, I've mentioned this quote often, one of his most cryptic famous statements where he says, that which does not exist in deep dreamless sleep is not real. Um, so what exists in deep dreamless sleep? Nothing, formless awareness, that's what's real. So, so much to say there, um, and unless there's a follow-up, I'll probably just let that go to open it up for others. But that's a great question that I address in some detail in a couple of chapters in my book on dream yoga. So, cool, thanks for that. All right, okay, we can open it. Yeah, let's go to some of the raised hands and uh, to lead us off will be Glenn with the audio. Hi. Um, Hi. I have, a, I have um, a description of a, of a small portion of a dream last week in which the center portion was lucid and before and after was not. Yeah, not, not uncommon. Yep. Yeah, and what happens is I become aware of my actual real body. This is an X-rated dream, so I, I'm going to... Yeah, so that's okay. I become aware of a portion of my real body, and I'm also loosely aware of a dream that I'm having that is related to uh, energy-wise what I'm doing with my body. Should I be a little bit clearer here? Uh, well, so far so good. It, it depends on where you're taking me with it. So why don't you just continue, okay. and then I'll see if I well, need. Well, I guess what I what struck me when I read back through my notes and I realized what this was doing is the simultaneity of being aware of a lucid dream at the same time as there's a relationship to my actual body. I mean, it wasn't right. a dream body, it's a real body. Right. And so then I'm trying to think, hmm, I thought this wasn't possible. No, it's definitely possible. And, and, and this is, you know, in fact, some recent, uh, well, not that recent, it's been around for a while, some, some really compelling research over the last couple of years alludes to this, and this parenthetically is, is something that may be somewhat recent to the scientific community, what I'm about to say, but it's been talked about in the wisdom traditions for thousands of years, and, and that's the following, is that, you know, it's just, um, when these particular stages of, of consciousness are, are described and articulated, it's almost by default that we, we think that these particular states are therefore in their own right also exclusive of other states. In other words, that, I, that when I'm in the waking state, I can't be dreaming. When I'm in, when I'm in a lucid dream state, I can't be awake. Um, not necessarily so. That seems to be implied, but it's actually not necessarily the case. And, and, and the way this applies to both wisdom traditions and modern science is that in the wisdom traditions, especially in, in uh, Nandushaiva Tantra, they have a very interesting kind of ninefold cartography, a more granulated, refined description of states of awareness across these three classic states that I was just alluding to earlier, waking, dreaming, and dreamless sleep. And so within that cartography, what they say is, you know, take three and divide those, uh, multiply those three by three and you get nine. And so that what it means is that 
you can have in the waking state a juxtaposition of the dream state. We know that is daydreaming. You can have a juxtaposition of a momentary complete spacing out. That's a juxtaposition of that bandwidth of consciousness when you just totally space out. And so you can take that same tripartite approach and then extend it to the other two states. And that's what's going on with you. The scientific community, and this is interesting because it gives attraction, what they are now discovering with inc increased refinements in brain imaging, neuroimaging techniques, is that it's not, you know, the entire brain doesn't just rapidly or even subtly convert into one synchronous um, uh, state. It, it, it's not just that way. In other words, part of your brain can be asleep, part of your brain can be awake, part of your brain can be dreaming. And I, to me, that just makes so much sense. And so therefore, in your experience, bears it out, Glenn, you know, so there you're, you're in that and part of your um, brain is dreaming, it's lucid dreaming. And then there's, you know, you flicker out out of that into the other part of your dream, um, your awareness is connected to this body. Um, so I think that's what we need to perhaps take home as a message here is that even though we have these kind of classic clunky, you know, um, classifications of consciousness, these are just kind of gross general orienting generalizations. When you increase your refinement, your awareness, you start to realize that, you know, we're, we're popping in and out of waking, dreaming, sleeping all the time, right? Um, and so something like that, you, you were in one of these hybrid states where Part of your brain was experiencing this, part of your brain was experiencing that, and somehow they came together and you're going, how can this be possible? This is why it's possible. Okay? Thank you. Yeah, cool experience, man. Thanks, Glenn. All right, and uh, next with the audio will be Janine. Hello. Hi. Hi. Um, well, I think my question fits pretty well uh, following Glenn's. Um, because this idea of uh, all those different shades of gray between different states has really been my experience from the start. Cool. So that's just kind of how it's always been for me. And my question um, would primarily just be, I think, centered around the way that you might, um, any advice that you would have around kind of the way that we hold these dream tasks that we might be, that we might have to be working on the lucidity. And basically, um, I'm just seeing if you have any more advice about the balance between sort of effortless, spontaneous yeah, experiences yeah. and the effort part of it. And I could give you one or two quick examples, um, if you like. Uh, one's really quick, okay. which is um, in terms of, say, having the task of flying. Um, I it makes sense to me to try to think about flying, you know, kind of during the day, if, if, if one can remember to do that. And then that could sort of seed our unconscious. But for example, I had an experience where in the middle of the night, I sort of woke up or in some kind of gray zone and I thought of flying. I certainly did, wasn't having a lucid dream really. It was more of an effortful thing where I said, okay, let's think about flying. And that was not spontaneous. But then all of a sudden, spontaneously, I found myself sort of thinking about, well, that I would kind of be flying around the, uh, the leading tower of Pisa, <laughs> you know, some kind of goofy things, which was certainly spontaneous, you know. 
And then like an even funnier one that maybe you'd get a kick out of because it relates to some advice that you gave a few weeks ago to Patricia, uh, who I kind of, um, who, who, I, who I know a little bit, and you suggested that she could change a highlighter into an apple. Right. And so sure enough, uh, I think it, this was a different, different time for me, but I was kind of in a gray zone, kind of like in the middle of a night. And I thought of that task but it was but it was an but it was a conscious thing and then i was really kind of surprised to find that after thinking about that task i i really did have a more spontaneous experience oddly enough of a of a of a dwarf handing me a sliced apple on a plate <laughs> which is kind of you know there's some associations maybe yeah. dwarfs and apples and then even more oddly the previous day, I had read an article about new uh, uh, drugs potentially for, for, for dwarfism. So it was just such a wild example sure. of, of, sure. of all these different influences, yeah. which I thought was kind of a little bit fun. But my real question is, is there, is there advice on, on how much effort to make? And is it, is it a good idea to spend a lot of time doing this consciously or not? Yeah, good question. It really kind of depends, right? I mean, it depends on you and what your aspirations are. Again, somewhat similar into the, the spirit and the narrative of what we're talking about all, all together today is that you have options. It's, again, it's not just one thing. That's, that's terrific. You know, you have on one level, so let's just start on one level. Let's say you have the effortful thing. So you've got, you know, classically, there are these stages of dream yoga, I unpack them because those stages in and of themselves are so pithy that I add a little bit of water and I, I blow these up into these nine stages of dream yoga. Those are super valuable ways to engage with your mind. And so some, an analogy would be like, okay, you sit in meditation. Do you want to just um, sit in meditation and just kind of watch your mind? That has its validity. Or do you want to sit in meditation during the day and do this particular practice or this particular you know generation stage or vipassana or analytic meditation or whatever they both have some validity so i would make room for both um some nights especially when lucidity personally when i wake up like i had a couple of lucid dreams last night they were sort of okay in terms of clarity and duration but not super so i didn't really jump and crank up go to some of the lucid dreaming um, dream yoga stages, I did more of a witness awareness thing. So that's the first one now. So we, now we switch to that, where you have a lucid dream and it's, it's called witnessing uh, lucid dreaming or pellucidity, where you simply elect to just watch your mind without engaging in it. That's, that's incredibly valuable. In fact, one of the kind of critiques, I think slightly um, ill-informed, misinformed of people who criticize lucid dreaming is that, oh, you know, you just want to control everything. You, you want to just control. Well, no, no, it's not just that. There is room for just simply a allowing the contents of the mind to express themselves, but you're aware of it. So the dream is still lucid, but like being there, you just simply elect to watch. That's completely available. That's, that's a kind of witnessing awareness stance. That's effortless. Um, so somewhere in there, we can just find our way. I, I, I play along the entire spectrum. There are lots of times when I just do witnessing dreams and basically just maintain lucidity and watch my mind like a movie. And then the stuff that's gonna come up is gonna come up regardless whether I'm lucid to it or not. And so therefore it doesn't interrupt the flow of the unconscious mind, which some people say is, is kind of the 
danger of lucid dreaming. I don't buy that. It doesn't make sense to me. Um, and then other times I wake up, you know, I wake up, my lucid dream is like, oh man, a lot of clarity tonight, solid, clear. And then I might go after um, a lucid dream or dream yoga stage. Sometimes I'll incubate these during the day. Other times I won't. You know, when I'm in retreat, I tend to incubate more. So I will do lucid dream induction and say, tonight, I really want to work on stage, whatever, five, six, seven, four, doesn't matter. And then I, I use that to kind of seed that type of activity. Um, I do that, you know, sometimes during normal life, but very often I, I'm a little bit more relaxed, serendipitous. I just allow the dream to arise. And um, I always, in, in fact, I talked about this in the interview with Daniel yesterday, when I asked him what he did, which I thought his answer was quite rich. He said, well, you know, first of all, I just allow whatever dreamscape that I enter in, I allow that to be the platform for that particular start. I thought that was really nicely said. And then so you can, you know, you can also juxtapose it. You can hang out for a few minutes, just watch, do nothing, witness, and then say, ah, you know, I'm getting a little bored or whatever. I, I now want to be a little bit more effortful. And then you try to put the, you know, the, the, the marker into, change the marker into an apple or something like that. So the bottom line is, you know, th there's a spectrum of upaya, a spectrum of applicability that you can engage in. And so you can just kind of either go with it or uh, bring some effort and, and create certain things. Okay, cool. All right, great, thanks Janine. Um, next up with the audio will be Erica. Okay, um, can you all hear me? Yeah. Oh, great, hi Andrew and everyone. Hi. Great to see everyone. Um, just a little dovetail from what you just said. Um, just sort of curious. I mean, it, it seems to me like it's almost as though you'd be doing like a, a Vipassana type state of, of observation of your dream, sort of just, uh, you know, what you might do in a waking state. Um, mm -hmm. Sort of same thing. I, yep. it, did I glean that correctly? Yes, correct. Okay, correct. sort of non judgmental. Right. Uh, awareness like oh that's not even isn't that interesting but just oh <laughs> like, yeah let me just say something right away before you continue you know Kripalu Swami Kripalu who founded or it was in his name that the Kripalu um, retreat center it was was founded I remember I did a program there and they had all these little quotes from him around the building and one of them really struck me where he said you know the highest form of spiritual practice is self-observation without judgment I thought that was pretty good so that's exactly this, self-observation in the dreaming state or in the waking state without judgment. So um, anyway, I just wanted to throw that in before I forget. No, be beautiful, that really clarifies it for me. So, um, uh, boy, I could really use some help with this, um, Andrew. I, I, um, I've recently sold my home of 34 years and, and uh, got out of New York City just before COVID hit. Um, and oh. some of that had to do, it was a little bit of a premonition that shit was gonna hit the fan and I needed to make changes in my oh. life. So I'm in a place that's familiar to me. I've been in this actual space, renting it for like nine years. So it's not like I don't know where my bed is or I know where the door is, but I had the most unusual experience uh, with sort of this liminal state. You know, I woke up in the, you know, wee hours of the morning to go to the bathroom. And really it was a spatial topsy-turvy. Right. I think I was sleeping, I was trying to sleep on my right side because I'm <laughs> told we want to sleep on our right side. And it's it's not that 
it's challenging for me because I have physical problems on the right side, but be that as it may, north was south, east was west, up was down. Uh, there was, um, and I was able to, I wasn't completely, it was a liminal state, but you know, I realized the call of the bathroom was strong um, and I didn't want to walk into the window when it should have been the door. Um, it, but there was this sense of observing myself uh, because I'm a control freak uh, in my waking state. I have to work with that. So essentially, um, I noticed I wasn't completely awake. I wasn't completely dreaming, but uh, I knew I had to, you know, kind of get out the door. Um, and it made an impression on me. So, um, you know, any thoughts about uh, what the significance of that or how to work with something like that when it's sure. in a physicality? Well, say me a little bit more when you say it, are you, are you simply talking about that liminal space where you're neither here nor there and, and you're not anchored and that kind of thing? Is that what you're referring to? Yeah, and then, you know, and again, this is not a psychology class, but of course, it, that dovetails, you know, the spiritual practice with psychology, but, you know, the sense of wanting to ground myself, like, immediately, you know, as if, yeah. or, or, you know, or realizing that, uh, you know, there was a little panic that set in, like, where am I? Because right. I really couldn't find my way. Right. Um, yeah. But I was conscious of the fact that I couldn't find my way, and then I was sort of talking to myself, like, it's okay. You'll find your way. You'll be Helen Keller in the dark. It's all right. You know, I was like, <laughs> yeah, got it. Got it. So yeah, a couple of things. First of all, I mean, those states are extremely interesting. Um, I'm going to say two things here. One is uh, on one level, the kind of the really just street level practicality that, that you don't want to in that kind of space, jump up and, and like, um, you want to be really careful physically when you're moving around because you can really hurt yourself physically. I mean, if you get up and you're completely disoriented and you're trying to find your way, you can like fall and whack your head and all that. So I, on that super practical level, I would just simply say in a new space like that, um, just be careful, move slowly because I, 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 I won't share them because they're so unsettling, but I have heard some really kind of almost horror level stories of people like, banging their head and splitting their heads wide open. So that's one thing. Most importantly for us um, is the kind of what you were talking about, the groundlessness and the panic and all that. That's really interesting space for me. And, and I, I experience these things in particular when I'm um, you know, suffering a little bit from jet lag or traveling internationally. And I, you, know, you wake up in the dead of night, your, your clock is so messed up. It's just like you said, you, don't, you have no idea where you are. Um, and even deeper who you are. And I, I, I actually find these states really interesting because what, what happens there, maybe one way you can play with it, and you're intimating this already, is that you know, when you go offline and then come back online, again, somewhat similar to the earlier questions, you don't fully come online all at the same time. And so you can um, play with how, it, how you actually relate to groundless situations and, and how when the storyline, the narrative that is actually ego itself, the very sense self is temporarily suspended, you know? So you do wake up and you don't know where the F you are. That's, you know, instead of panicking, and often there is that panic because ego just wants certainty, ego wants ground. And when it doesn't have it, you, you'll feel it as that kind of groundless panic. That's super interesting. So instead of capitulating to that panic next time, maybe you can say, wow, can I stay with this groundlessness and just be with that and explore it? 
very interesting. Well, well he, what happened? What happened was um, th I, I talked myself down. I mean, I said, uh, "Slow down. You'll find your way." Y you know, as I was exactly. in the state, yeah, I didn't exactly. bang my head um, and all of that. But um, just last night, I had a dream that I was invited by President Trump to make deliver cookies that's my business to the rose garden for a tea that melania trump was giving and i was i was in with the republicans like i had i was vetted uh and i sort of woke up laughing and horrified at the same time so i just wanted to like lighten up and just yeah <laughs> yeah so what i would say erica all, all, you know along those lines is that that's a bardo experience you know liminality is a bardo experience it's it's revelatory. I mean, how how does one react with that groundlessness? You know, so again, not only just where you are, but even deeper who you are. And notice how the mind scrambles to coalesce the storyline. You know, wait, 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 what, 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 what? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Storyline consolidated. Yes, I'm in this new place. Yes, here I am. All of a sudden, you feel safe and secure because that narrative is back online. That's revelatory of how we clamor for the narrative itself. And so. Maybe see if you can just hang out in that space and, and without contracting, without feeling unsettled and just float in that bardo. That in itself is a, you know, a little bit of a bardo practice. So that's the way I would relate to it. It's just like, whoa, this is interesting. You know, how can I relate to this without freezing? Because the minute you freeze, you may notice this. If you stay with that experience, there's no panic. The, the, the kind of panic only comes about, and it, um, in fact, they're, they're co-simultaneous, you know, you contract that contraction actually is the expression of panic. Um, and so, you know, um, notice what happens um, when you do that and notice what happens just before and, and see if you can just be open in, uh, to both and then actually just kind of fly in that open, non-centered, non-referential space. I find those experiences actually very interesting. Not always pleasant from an egoic perspective, but really interesting. So Thank something you. like Thank that. You. Yeah, Thank welcome. You. Thank you. But don't bump your head. No, no. <laughs> Thanks so much. Thanks, Erica. All right. Uh, next with the audio will be Alan Siegel. Hi, Andrew. Hi, Alan. From Albany, your favorite place, I think you said you won last week. There? Yeah, I like Albany. <laughs> All right. A uh, couple of things. Uh, you've mentioned uh, on several occasions, and, and rightly so, uh, uh, young. Um, he simply said, and I like that fact that it was a very simple statement, who looks out dreams, who looks in awakens. Right. right, that's it, the end, you know, I mean, I love it. My favorite analogy is of waves on the ocean. Um, to me, the waves is the human aspect, relative, mind, ego, form. I am human, the waves, also, you have the relative again being, you know, the bigger waves make me uh, scared, uh, black and white and green and all different colors and knowledge, you know, he's smarter than me. He knows so much, you know, but again, being, I is being is the ocean. Mm -hmm. Absolute, as you've been saying, nothingness. Empty is lack of something. Beyond that is absolute nothingness. And that is the ocean reference absolute nothingness peace mm -hmm. uh everything that is you know real that is reality ultimate reality um 
you know, and then you mentioned the cross, you didn't mention the cross, but you said uh, problems or issues people have bearing the cross, surrendering the human aspect, the relative, the pain, the mind, the ego created to the absolute beingness, which is consciousness. You become conscious of that and you, you realize you, you don't, you know, you release the pain and you're conscious of the reality, you know, the, the peace. And, and to yeah. me, that's the light. The light is not only in terms of, of visual, but extra baggage we carry, which, again, uh, it would be a reference to intelligence. You know, you guys carry a lot of words and books and knowledge, and it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a wealthy, and that wealth includes intelligence, not only money, but also the ego aspect. Man, it's you know easier for him to go through than to enter the the kingdom of heaven. You know, you got so much stuff to carry. You know, you know, let go, let go, and let the universal intelligence take over those books and that knowledge is is blocking the being aspect of who we are. That light, it's you got too much stuff going on, too many words, too many ideas. Let go. You know, this is this pandemic should be seen for what it is, a divine intervention. It's very serious. It's worldwide. It's what the Bible's been talking about. And the last thing I'll mention, 2020 is interesting. The year, the number, because, sure. you know, we're talking about raising consciousness, insight, 2020 vision to a higher level. And that would be the perfect level, you know, 2020 vision to see within, sure. you know, so that's it's the end. That's it. Yeah. Yeah, so a couple things. Um, yeah, you know, <clears throat> waves forget that they're made out of water. Um, the Carl Jung thing is beautiful. Tuku Ujin Rinpoche went even further when he said samsara's mind turned out, lost in its projections. Nirvana's mind turned in, recognizing its true nature. So that's really, um, I completely agree with all that. I would make one point of clarification, however, and that is that the formlessness is not the ultimate. Um, it may be the absolute, but it's not the ultimate. And let me, let me tell you what I mean by that. This is, if we're not really careful here, we can fall into, again, the subtle cosmological dualism. And, and this, is, this is a very subtle problem where I see it a lot, where we, we tend to make this somewhat fallacious assumption that everything arises out of this formlessness, that, you know, that everything is an, you know, a, a, an expression of that formlessness. On a provisional level, that, that's, that's temporarily true. However, the problem with that then is it creates um, and intimates this very subtle cosmological dualism that somehow the ultimate is actually separate from the relative, it's not. So it's actually, it's not true in the ultimate sense to say that things arise from, the, from that ultimate, they don't. They arise as the ultimate. And that may seem um, so, you know, sophist and very like whatever, it's actually quite important because otherwise then you still have this sense and I can give you, you know, classic vocabulary in the Buddhist tradition. It's, it's the, you know, very subtle spiritual escapist bypass problem where we think everything has to be transformed into the Dharmakaya. The Dharmakaya is it. In the Hindu tradition, everything goes to Turiya. Turiya is it. It's not. It's a third of it. Then you have to go back into form. Otherwise, the awakening is incomplete. You have to transform, in Buddhist language, mature dharmakaya into the inseparability of the kayas, which is called kaya. In Hinduism, you have to go even beyond the fourth to what's called Turiya Ticha, which is literally beyond the fourth. So I throw this into the mix because 
I mean, here's an example in, in the Buddhist tradition, you know, we have all these liturgies that are, that are something like this, you know, the essence of thoughts is Dharmakaya as is taught, nothing whatever, but everything arises from it. Provisionally true, but not ultimately true, arises as it. And if we don't, if we don't maintain that subtlety, then we're gonna be stuck in very subtle spiritual traps. So I throw that into the mix because people get stuck in this one. Um, but otherwise, um, thank you for the contribution, Neil. Nicely said. Thank you. Thanks, Alan. All right, and uh, next with the audio will be LD. Hi there, I'm Lorraine. Hi. Okay. Thank you. Um, yeah, I had two questions and they're not related. So okay. um, I have to make them clear. First one was to do with you, you uh, speaking a little bit earlier on about um, being real as opposed to chasing good feelings and it struck a huge chord. Oh, I'm, I'm okay. dealing a lot with family discord. Um, I'm sort of had some mystical experiences around the death of my stepfather a, a year ago and all of the long-term sort of misunderstanding from I'm being sort of outcast from the family for, for being misunderstood and just how much of that I can take the, the sort of pain of that and transmute that into, you know, into, uh, you know, grist for the mill, using that to just accept that, that you know, that, that's the path of the sort of awakening mystic in, in myself. And the other question was to do with the dreaming. I haven't long been practicing lucid dreaming and um, I had a couple of really interesting experiences straight off the bat, which, which really sort of got my attention. The first one was just having a dream about a snake and then saying to myself in the dream, it's a turquoise snake, that's important. So then I woke up straight away with, with that in my mind, it just was a nice pointer for me. And then recently having a dream, uh, uh, visiting a dungeon, I'd been there before. My son was actually talking me through uh, escaping from the dungeon. And, and at that time he came in my room and I stayed in the dream, spoke to him and walked into his room, still in the dungeon, but also with him, which was a really, um, that was really, I don't know, I found that very, uh, interesting and that sort of felt like it was awakening something in me. Thank you so much for the space to ask the question. So I, I, you have to help me a little bit because I don't really know what the question is for the first part of what you said. I heard more statements. I didn't really actually hear a question. Um, so I either missed it or maybe just tell me what the question actually is. Hello. Sorry, one Hello. second. Sorry, I'm so sorry about that. Uh, apologies. Um, the question, the question is how to hold that energy of um, during the awakening process and not having not having incarnated. With part of my lesson is having uh, family of origin that don't want to be emotionally conscious, don't want to be conscious, don't want to be emotionally aware. So, how much of the mist? You know, is that just part of when you're you know awakening when you incarnate thus you know that you have to deal with that pain i'm just maybe off subject so don't worry if you don't have anything yeah, to say no, on no, that. no no it's just a matter of clicking into what you're really asking yeah i mean first of all you know the first thing the idea of how to hold it well uh, one thing would be i think when you say hold you mean contain because um you don't want to hold it you want to accommodate it there's a difference so if you're talking about hold or asking about hold as kind of a holding environment then in fact, it's, it's very similar to the crying meditation where, where you simply want to give yourself permission to completely feel what's happening, relate to it, but relate to it instead of from it. In other words, it just becomes part of your experience, but 
um, you don't identify with it. So therefore, it's utterly non-problematic. So if that's what you're asking, you hold it in, in the sense of um, containing it by allowing your heart and mind to be big enough, receptive enough to actually be with it without contracting against it. Um, and then if I understand those, the latter part of what you're asking, yeah, I mean, that, that kind of discord, right? That's just part and parcel of the whole incarnation business. <laughs> um, and, and so understanding, you know, when you said at the outside, I almost chuckled, you know, family discord, that's, that's redundant, right? <laughs> Family discord, you know, if you have family, you're going to have discord. So am I tracking you with that second part? Am, am I? Yeah. yeah, thank you. You are beautiful. Yeah, and then, and then just sense of levity and, and path, you know, that here's another way to look at it. One, one of the things that I do with this is sometimes I do this little visualization, imagination thing where I imagine that everybody is enlightened. Everybody on this planet is enlightened, but me. Everybody's awake in this world but me. And so that, that in-law, that relative or whatever, that total jerk is the Buddha manifesting in that way to teach me about patience. That jerk, whatever, that I append the label to is Padmasambhava teaching me love and kindness and compassion. And, and what that does is just bring about this, this sense of ultimate teaching moments, teachable moments. Everything is a teachable moment, right? Um, yeah, so that's that's just one way I work with it. Um, it's just brings about a heightened sense of elegance and, and actually gratitude for what is being presented to me. You know, I mean, these fundamentally these so-called discords, obstacles, so to speak, they're just opportunities in disguise. You know, as in the tantric traditions, you know, mixing metaphors, there are no weeds in the garden of tantra. Everything is workable. Everything. We just have to learn how to establish a relationship to it, work with it, see the light within. So I'm kind of pinging all over the place on that, but that's what comes to mind with what I think I understand of your question. So that's that beautiful. Thank you so much. I, I got very much from that. Thank you. Great. Thank you. Great. Thanks for that. All right. And uh, next will be Ted X. <laughs> FedEx, Fed, FedEx, Ted X. Hey, Ted. Really enjoyed the retreat last weekend. It was great. Oh, thanks. Thanks for being there. So with, with the crying meditation, yeah, to me, I have, it made me realize I would have been a terrible actor, um, you know, to, to just be able to bring up an emotion. And it's not that I haven't had life experiences, which have been sad, tragic, death of a son, you know, divorce, death of parents, hospice patients, on and on. So I have lots of fodder, but when I, you know, not only when I'm dealing with them, but when I'm meditating on them, there's not the extreme thing that brings tears. Sure. That, that and, and, you know, on the other hand, when I do watch TV that has a commercial on it, you know, sometimes I can have tears flowing down my three to the Clydesdales going down the street. <laughs> With the puppies. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, it's not as if I don't have that emotion, but to just bring it up is, is next to impossible. And one of the questions I have, and this is a little bit about reverse meditations. Sure. When we do these reverse meditations, it seems that there is both benefit, but there's a danger 
that we're either creating negative seeds, negative karma, or watering existing um, negative seeds when we do that. What is the that? What, speak, be a little bit more specific, Ted. What is the that? Well, in other words, you know, when I talked a couple of weeks ago about, you know, watching the Republican convention and so on, and, and having that tightness, having that, you know, emotional um, sense to it. And is that, is that watering anger seeds, no. frustration seeds? No, not, not necessarily, not at all. Uh, because, you know, fundamentally, even, you know, when anger is transformed, you know this, it's, it transforms into the wisdom of uh, the Vajra-like um, mind, the, the wisdom of that incisive clarity. So it, it's not bringing up, you're not heightening kind of karmic propensities and, and that sort of thing. In fact, this will work to soften karmic propensities because fundamentally these reverse meditations will lead you to replace, you know, reactivity with responsibility. So you don't have these re re traditionally reactive adverse um, relationships. That's what creates karma. <clears throat> so you may be, <clears throat> excuse me, you may be entering yourself voluntarily into difficult situations. The, the, the only way that becomes problematic is if we capitulate to our old reactive ways. Then yes, then you're just kind of practicing bad habits. But we want to enter those states voluntarily so that when they happen spontaneously, we have a skill set. We can say, oh yeah, I did that in my, in my practice. I can relate to this jealousy. I can relate to this anger because I did so in my practice. Second thing is, as Zach was saying, you know, you only do the crying practice when it's natural. Um, you, don't, you don't bring it up. You don't, if it's not there, just, just don't do it. Um, the, this is just a particular upaya that's available. I mean, Zach came, came up with this thing, like I mentioned, because it was his survival mechanism for dealing with a really difficult, long-going long mm -hmm. caregiving situation. So that's why it came up for him. And as he says, if you're not in a life circumstance where these emotions or whatever are being evoked, then you don't do this practice. This is just a skill set for if you are in that, here's a tool. So if it's not there, just don't do it. So, uh, so you do the practice when there's something that is arising. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, <clears throat> you don't have to otherwise. It's just, some, okay. it's just something to... One last bit of advice, and I'm probably the only one that's experiencing this, but you know, with the COVID shutdown, I'm actually looking at it, not the, you know, the deaths and the tragedies and so on and so forth. But for me personally, it's been a positive period of time. Mm -hmm. And how does one deal with that in family situations when they look at you like, what in the hell is wrong with you? you yeah, know? you know. Yeah, or what's right with you? It may be <clears throat> wrong from their perspective. Yeah, you know, we're not responsible for other people's karma. Um, I wouldn't give those those places, those comments, or or whatever place to land. Um, you know, bring bring what could be cultivated around this as quality of equanimity, even to that. And yes, you know, these these are unusual. Using these like types of circumstances for as opportunities may seem a bit unusual, but you know, honestly, it's, in my opinion, the most skillful way to deal with what's happening. And so if you get those kinds of looks and comments, um, I, I simply just, you know, mute it, just let it go, let it calm, let it, calm, let it go, don't feed it. Um, and just simply just do your thing and realize you can't be responsible for others karma or their reactions towards what you're doing. I think it may be as straight as straightforward as that.
mm-hmm. just that you know make room for everybody's approach and um, some people get defensive contractive that's the default with these when I think I mentioned early early on um, under stress, stress, stressful situations studies have actually shown the default is contractive defensive offensive fear <clears throat> So people default there. You're, you're practicing to default into wisdom. And sometimes that people can't relate to that. They may think you're weird, but you know, we're, we, we are weird. <laughs> we, we are weird. We're doing something that's pretty darn different. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, we have to stick to our guns and realize that, that what is it doing to you? It's keeping you stable, equal, balanced, and, and then you know, just <clears throat> stay the course. Good, thank you. Okay, my friend. Okay, yeah. maybe one more. How are we doing time-wise um, and, or with list-wise? How many people are still up? Oh, we've got three in the queue right now. Okay, let's do three and then we'll close it for today. All right. Uh, well, next up will be Judith with the audio. Just trying to get it sorted one second. Unmuted. Yep. Hi, Andrew. Hello. Andrew, my sense of this summer, this end of summer with the COVID, it feels very different than any other end of summer. And, um, you know, we've been only able to meet in groups outside, that kind of thing, especially the Sangha. You know, we haven't met at the temple or anything like that. Right. And I wondered if, if it would be okay if I read a poem right now. Sure, or, if, it's not, if it's not too long. Sure. Uh, I hope, no, I don't think so. Okay. It's called End of Summer 2020. Okay. Please. The trees are unaware of our dread of winter's new isolation. Warm air behind mist to incoming chill from the sea. With covered smiles, we have not touched each other, though greeted the runner in front of the house, nodded to the postman whose job is at stake. If there is a Lord God, what might she say? Go out and buy for yourself and for someone else a coat stuffed with goose down, hat and gloves. Include silk underwear for others too. As winter approaches, your ally is the parks, rails to trails and local walks. Set up on your balconies a small heat source to look at the moon's lack of preference. Then be businesslike. Call for a convention of wild animals so you can listen to their sorrow. Ask forgiveness for history. If you don't know what you are here for, sleep on the edge of the sea and let it breathe for you. One day you will be able to kiss again. It will be different. Pain purifies the heart to kiss without ulterior force. The end of summer is the new election. Let the wind enter the garden with a ballot. As apples and pears drop into your hand, holding their ripeness, their willingness to let go, their desire to nourish, is all the politics you need. Yeah, that's beautiful. Thank you. Thank you, Judith. Um, Love the offering. Uh, thank you. Um, and you it, one quick question. Is luminous dreaming, is it part of your karma, whether you can do it or not? You mean lucid dreaming? Yeah. Well, yes and no. Uh, Certain people have karmic propensities, you know, certain people have talents, just like for any other discipline. Um, has to do maybe a little bit with the way the subtle body is configured. 
but that that's not uh, um, immutable. I mean, you know, in other words, you can change. So yes, some people have certain predispositions, talents or whatever, just like with any other discipline. So they are kind of karmically high, hardwired, but that doesn't mean anybody can't do this. Anybody can do it. Um, you know, they just have to engage in the proper yeah. method for certain, yeah. certain people seem to have predispositions. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks for the poem. Beautiful. Yeah, thank, thank you. you. Thanks, Judith. All right, next to the audio will be Rahim. Okay, I'm unmuted. Thanks. Um, Judith is a hard act to follow. I'm going mundane now, so. <laughs> All good. All right. Um, so I have a, a, a question about lucid dreaming and I do a, a sensory de deprivation tanks. Uh -huh. I'm wondering if there was any research done on being lucid in a, uh, a sensory deprivation situation. And, uh -huh. and because I, I used to call it what happened to me in their kind of active daydreaming, but it's not because I didn't think it was sleep, but now since I've been studying with you, I'm looking at it more like everything's kind of a dream state. So um, uh, I'm looking for some research on that and any advice uh, for to be practical and becoming lucid in a tank. Yes, there is some preliminary data. Um, a friend of mine, um, Richard Bonk, actually, every he swears by this. Every time he goes into the tank, he has a lucid dream. And so we've been pinging back um, communication for a couple of years now where he's been trying to get funding to create studies where this can somehow be replicated and utilized because otherwise, obviously everybody can't have a, a, a flotation tank in their room. I've, I've tried it, um, didn't work for me, but that doesn't mean anything. So the, the data, again, my, I haven't been in contact with Richard for a while, but this is his big thing. Um, and so I, I do believe he's trying to get funding and they're trying to do this. So stay tuned. My guess is something will come forth, but I don't know of anything yet. But I also, I also haven't been in contact with him for a while, but um, you're not the first one. Yeah, other people have had that kind of experience. Right. Thank you. And what was the second part? Did I miss something else on the, was there a tagline or another one? Uh, on that one? Just, just should I use my basic uh, uh, practices for sleep to become lucid in the tank? Yeah, same. Yeah. Yes, yeah. Uh, you know, I personally, I, I, I haven't had success in tank um, retreats, but, I, you know, I do dark retreat, which is not that too dissimilar, where you go into really intensive, extensive sensory deprivation. And they're, they're anecdotal data for sure. In fact, I, I think Stephen LeBaire's uh, probably has some hardcore data on that, okay. that um, classic, you know, not, not flotation tanks, but classic sensory deprivation seems in fact to be conducive to lucidity. My personal experience bears that out. When, when I go into these, these practices, my lucid dreams absolutely skyrocket. Um, so yeah, it's cool stuff. There's again, really interesting data coming out on both those fronts. Cool. Thank you. Thank All right, you. welcome. Okay, Andy, one last one. That's right, and uh, this will be Leah, or Leah. Um, hi, Andrew. Hi. I, I've been listening. Hi. Uh, I have been formulating this question as we have been listening to others speak, and uh, I'd okay. like to try and get as short as possible, but it has to do with acting theater um, and the use of yourself to inhabit other roles and other sure. bodies, I guess. Beautiful. Uh, yeah. 
you know, it seems like it's the ultimate empathetic uh, attempt. But maybe, I, maybe this is something you could address at another time or whatever. No, no, that's, a, that's an interesting question. I, I, I completely agree with you. Um, and let me just sh share with you what immediately comes to mind is um, Lama Yeshe Rinpoche, who I, I love this guy. Um, he once said, he shares the story where he was teaching a class <clears throat> somewhere and, and one of the students, he found out that one of his students was an actor and he got all excited and, and he said in his broken English, he said, he goes, wondrous, he goes, I actor, I best actor, I emptiness, therefore I can be anything. And, and so that's actually a pretty compelling thing to say, that, that, that fundamentally this type of acting, um, whether at a more colloquial theatrical level or at this deep kind of spiritual level, can speak of how we can become chameleons of identity and that we can take on different roles. We, we do, I mean, Shakespeare wrote about this, right? We take on different roles on the stage of life yeah, to respond in skillful ways to other beings. And so that kind of conjoins the kind of Shakespearean approach with what Lama Yeshe was saying. <laughs> that fundamentally, what acting can do is point out that, again, coming way back to what we talked about an hour and a half ago, that um, you, know, you do not exist at, at, at a particular locked-in spectrum of identity. Dream yoga, in fact, um, several stages in dream yoga are in fact about this kind of acting taking on different forms in the dream state to become more flexible, malleable in our manifestation. So uh, for sure, absolutely. So there's nothing wrong with it. There's no, I mean, it's not a betrayal of the ego, blah, blah, blah. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I mean you know, it's a, it's a positive- uh, Theater? A positive work. Theater? Altogether. Yeah. But well, being not, not inherently so, no. Not inherently so, it can be. I mean, you know, yes, in essence, you know, there's dark and, and light sides to anything. So I, we're talking about the light side, but you know, a lot of egos um, can be theatrical. I should say a lot of uh, theater can be egoic in a, in a negative sense where you can take um, the discipline of acting and use it for purposes of self-aggrandizement. And that's where the artist becomes the entertainer. And that's, you know, so inherently acting is, is you could say neutral it just depends on the intentions and what we're trying to do when we act. I mean, are we really acting to work with mind and heart and manifest in this way? Or are we acting to perhaps, you know, show our prowess as an actor? And then of course, then that twists into really easy kind of traditional inflationary tendencies of the great actresses and actors, right? So I think somewhere in there, you know, you can use anything, um, but it has, you know, near enemies and near friends. So it's yeah. helpful to know what those near enemies and friends are. Sound like a plan? Oh, I mean, I, I thank you. I think that's a great, uh, another way to think about um, re reducing the ego and yes. also in a positive way, building from it. Exactly. I don't know if formless you, you, is, I'm a little confused, but formless. Exactly. Form, yeah, form. so by, again, another way to say this is that by decentralizing the locus of identity and realizing you can become chameleon, you can, you can take on all these forms in a certain way, if, we're, if we use it rightly, that decentralizes the, the false notion that there is a central form because there isn't. And so by doing this with some grace, you realize the mind can actually gracefully manifest in all these different forms. And there doesn't have to be a foundational central headquarters behind it all. Um, and so that's the way I relate to it. So yeah. something like that. Um, we have, we've gone over time. I was gonna put in another quick question, but. If it's quick, it can be, it can be quick, but I, I do uh, need You to were mentioning it. Daniel earlier in the discussion. Daniel Love, yeah. 
Uh, yeah, he's the guy who has split personality. Is is that correct? No, I don't okay. know anything about that. No. Okay, never mind. No. Yeah, right. I don't know anything. About no, okay. Yeah, he's right. a he's yeah, a lucid dreaming. Different person. Uh, Daniel Love is a lucid dreaming expert and author, and so oh, that's okay. we're probably All talking right. about two different things. Thanks, everybody. I gotta go. Nice to see you. Um, wash your hands. Keep your minds and hearts open. Dream on, and uh, we'll see you next week or sometime. Ciao.